Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, jrforesteros.com. Enjoy the class. Yay! One being not at all uncomfortable, ten being incredibly awkward. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Um, that's interesting. And uh, it's going to be particularly interesting as we continue to talk about uh, tonight how interconnected the idea of the temple was uh, with so many different things. So keep that in mind. Uh, so a couple of just quick points that I want to make sure that we remember really well as we move into our discussion tonight. Uh, the temple, and I had you kind of discussing this, right? The temple was this—it was the symbolic center of Jewish culture, you know, of Israelite culture. Uh, it was a—it was a microcosm of creation, right? It represented the whole universe. It also represented the nation. It also represented the house. And in fact, uh, all through—we we looked at this, uh, I think, a little bit last week. Uh, all through the Old Testament, the temple is called God's house, right? God's house, God's house. It's called his footstool, right? It's his throne room. All these, all these, these king, these father metaphors, they kind of get all smushed together. And they all, the temple's all of those things, which again goes back to the idea that we kept talking about in the first week that that's why symbols are so powerful is because they can represent all of these things at the same time. And you're not having to pick and choose. They just, it, it can, it can stack meaning, right? And so the temple does that. It represented the the body, it represented the house, it represented the kingdom, it represented the universe. Uh, and there was they didn't see any problem differentiating among these things. Uh, so, I'm going to do a little homework quiz, see how you guys did. Did anyone read Ruth, one, Ruth 4? A few of you did? Okay. Ruth is one of those books that, if you don't have at least a little bit of an understanding of ancient Near Eastern culture and how it's different from ours, it barely makes any sense. I mean, you can get the basic plot that, like, Things are bad at the beginning and they're good at the end, right? But like other than that, there's just so many weird things going – weird to us, right, because we're not in that culture. Weird things going on in the book that's hard. So um, those of you who read it, was there anything helpful, you know, looking at the, the Beit Av structure, the, the, you know, the patriarchal structure? Did you understand what was happening at the city gate? Okay. When do you guys want to know? Tell, tell me a little bit. Like run through that for the people that didn't get a chance to read it. Place right. for the elders of the community, the town picked out um, would meet there. It was always men, the women didn't go there. Correct. Women in the culture didn't have any rights. But if you were widowed, if your husband died, it was your husband's family that had to claim you. That that the brother, one of the brothers of either his husband, would have to redeem you. Yes. Yep. children a place to belong. Yep. If you stayed a widow and didn't belong to anybody then, you were an outcast. Mm -hmm. That was really frowned upon. Yeah, and, and legally you were a non-person. Yes. Right, you had no rights, you had no way to earn income. No. Yeah. I mean, imagine, you know, someone today who didn't have a social security card, didn't have a driver's license, didn't have a birth certificate, they, I mean, who legally, you know, had none of the markers of personhood that our culture uses, right? And I mean, Exact to do. You can't get a job without your social security. Now you've got a driver's license. 
right. the ability to get there right. and, and their day and time. Right. You did not have a husband. Or a son or a father. That could do that. Yes. But once you're married, you exactly. don't have the exactly. husband. He died, so yes. you have this situation in your life. Uh, Ruth and Naomi. Ruth and Naomi, thank yep. you. <laughs> yeah, so, so they get back to Bethlehem. Hoping that Bo, uh, their, their deceased husband's uh, closest family will redeem them, and that doesn't happen. There's this guy, right? He's not even named in the story, but we don't, and we don't even meet him until chapter four. But we find out that there is a guy whose legal responsibility it was to care for them who had not been doing it. So through some scheming and seducing, Ruth convinces Boaz that maybe he should do it. But the problem is Boaz is not legally next in line. And so they basically have to, I mean, they basically have to go to the courthouse and sort all this out. But the courthouse is, of course, the city gate where all the elders met, all of the, the patriarchs. So they go there, and Boaz kind of, I mean, it's, it's all, it, once you understand the politicking of it all, it's really pretty brilliant of Boaz because he sort of casually mentions, hey, did you know that those people that you're responsible for are back? And the guy's like, oh, no. Oh, maybe I heard something about yeah. Yeah, I was meaning to check on that, you know. Because, again, it's not just like they're having a private conversation. I mean, this is this is being done in front of all of the authority figures. So so Boaz is essentially calling him out for being neglectful of responsibilities. And then this guy realizes that, you know, if he, if he actually does his responsibility, it's going to endanger his own inheritance. And so Boaz offers him an easy out and says, well, if you don't, if you're, you know, if you got stuff to do, I'm happy to bear that burden for you, you know, cousin. And the guy thinks this is a great deal. So then they have this legal transaction in front of the city elders where, you know, they exchange a shoe. And he says, you know, you even have this nice little editorial comment, right, where it says, like, now in that day, that was how this deal was sealed. And so they, you know, they pass the shoe and it's all done. Um, that just sounds strange to us because, again, we live in a world of literacy and legal documents and courthouses and things like that. And so we don't conduct legal business. But that is exactly what they're doing. They're sorting out an inheritance. They're sorting out patrimony, all of this kind of stuff. And then that was done. You know, today we do it in a deposition with some lawyers and stuff like that. But then they just did it in front of the city gate, which, again, was not like an actual gate. It was wherever all the old guys decided they wanted to sit. So uh, good. Yeah, that's just a, that's Ruth is such a great book. It, one, it's short. You can read it pretty easily. But then again, too, like it, it's it's inside the guts of this you know ancient culture in a way that, again, if you don't understand what's going on, you're just like, you know, again, I sort of understand, you know, I understand the basic plot line of this, but we miss a lot of the subtleties and a lot of the interplay of it. But you can use it to outline a lot of this stuff really well. So, all right. Now, Leviticus 16 was probably a little bit more difficult, but this was, this is the Day of Atonement ritual, which is a yearly sin ritual. And this is a great example of how the rituals tried to use, again, a very symbol, a lot of very symbolic gestures to preserve the integrity of the community. And so you have, you know, the whole nation gathers at the temple, or in this case it was the tabernacle still, because they had not settled in Jerusalem yet. You have Aaron, uh, the high priest, right, who's slaughtering bulls, and he's, he's actually using the blood to, like, he's, you know, putting it on the furniture inside the temple, and there's, there's a sense that he's, like, sort of washing the furniture with this blood, um, which is where some, uh, I think, 
someone pointed this out last week, this is where we get a lot of the imagery for Jesus. We're talking about being washed in the blood and, and things like that, is that actually that blood, because they believed blood was the you know what held life, that blood had the power to remove sin. And so, again, they didn't think that like sin was actu- actually literally some kind of uh, I don't know, like rust or something that accumulated in the temple. It was all it was all a symbolic worldview, right? Because the temple represented the universe by using blood to wash the things in the temple. It would clean away sin from the the world. I mean, it was again. It was, this was how they. This is how the Israelites, when they were worshiping, were partnering with God to maintain the world. They understood that what they were doing symbolically in the temple had global, we would say, cosmic consequences. Right, and again, that 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 that's a, an invitation God has made to them. When God said, "If you will be my people, I will be your God," that's what it meant. Was that they actually get to join with God in saving creation and restoring creation and combating sin. Uh, and so then you had this thing, you know, where they have the two goats, and one represents the sins of the Israelites, and it's killed in the temple and all that. And then the other one, they like again, uh, they didn't like. This is all, all symbolic. I can't overemphasize that enough. But they put all the sin of the community on the other goat, and then they let it out into the wilderness to Azazel, which no one's exactly sure what Azazel is, if it's the name of the wilderness or if it's like some kind of like demon something or whatever. You know, no one's exactly sure uh, because it's you know been 3,000 years since they wrote this stuff down. Uh, but they would take it out, and again, it would it would not come back. And some Why of the rap. Well, that's a funny question, right? Um, some of the rabbis had said, have suggested that there was a person responsible for leading it out of the camp, and then they would make sure that it didn't come back. Because you can imagine, if you had heaped the sin of the, the accumulated annual sin of the community onto this animal, it's sort of bad juju to have it just wandering back into the camp, bringing all, you know, <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, right, oh, it's back. Uh, no, so, I mean, they would say, you know, they would take it out and kill it, or they would maybe, like, throw it off a cliff, or they would... They would measures were taken. Yeah, measures were taken. Uh, so, um, but again, this all it, it's a, it's another great example of a lot of really detailed, complicated, and intricate rituals that from the outside seem kind of just weird, right? But when you can begin to understand how they saw the world and what the temple was for these people, it all starts to make a lot more sense. And again, they don't seem like silly savages that just like to kill animals, but like this was an integral way that they saw their relationship with God working not only for their own bodies, not only for their own homes, not only for their own kingdom, but again for like the sun, moon, stars, the seas, like everything that was a part of creation for them. They 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 saw that what they were doing had cosmic consequences. So was it also not God preparing them to understand as a free creature? Yes. So when Christ Yep Yes. And in fact, that's exactly what. So the book of Hebrews is written uh, sometime probably in like the. It's probably like in the first generation or two after Jesus uh, has ascended into heaven. And it's written specifically to Jewish people. And my suspicion is that, you know, there's a couple of little bits of Hebrews that we pick out, like chapter 11, the famous Hall of Faith and stuff like that. But most of the book. Most Gentiles, like you and me, we just kind of ignore it because it's all about how if you are a Jewish person who has been a part of this 
uh, you know, this ancient Jewish faith, here, exactly what you just said, here's how Jesus fulfills all of that. So he's a better Moses, he's a better Joshua, he's a better high priest, he's a better sacrifice, and they're doing exactly that. He's going in, the author is going in and picking all this stuff apart. And so for us, we read it and we're like, who cares, you know? It is fat, yeah. Intellectually, it's fascinating, but it doesn't have you know. None of us have ever gone to temple and sacrificed something for our families, so it doesn't have the same kind of like experiential and emotional weight, you know. For for us to hear, you know, Jesus sacrificed once and then sat down at the right hand of the Father, whereas the high priest sacrifices year after year. Again, intellectual, we're not dumb. We understand the imagery, but like we don't have the we don't have the experiential weight of having to have picked an animal and transported it to the temple, making sure that it stayed safe because it can't break an ankle or anything or have any blemishes by the time it gets there and then actually had to participate in slaughtering it with, I mean, that's, we don't have any, like, we got to... But the pieces fit together right. to prove to me that what happened and what was written by those prophets of old and in mm-hmm. all of these old historical texts Yes. has relevance mm-hmm. to the New Testament and has relevance today. That there was a divine plan and a divine hand yeah. in the writing of this to help us mm-hmm. understand how all the pieces fit together. Yeah. And it is hard to wrap our minds around, but to me it's just more proof mm-hmm. that of the validity and the relevance of the Old Testament. Good. How so? Because if, if they believed they'd be out of work, they wouldn't have any jobs anymore. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. So, hey, we, we can't stop what we're doing because this other guy showed up and died. Ended it all, yeah. Ended it all. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see, you can even really see that a little bit in the New Testament, where right, where Jesus is coming in conflict with some of these religious leaders. Like, exactly what he's threatening is their power base, their livelihood, their, all of that stuff. So, yeah, they probably didn't see it until after his death, of course, in terms of like, oh, no, this is the end of the whole thing. But certainly they understood that he was a big threat to them. Yep. Yeah, good. All right, so here's what I want to do tonight. Uh, I want to go into spend a very, as little time as possible, but still getting the job done in the New Testament, talking about what, what happens to the symbol of the temple in the New Testament, in the person of Jesus. And then I really want to spend a good amount of time, if we can, talking about what it means today. Because, again, obviously, like, none of us have ever been to temple, uh, especially not to, like, sacrifice animals and things like that. So so what do we do with it today? And how, how do we – where do these conversations have uh, meaning for us? So we're going to be in the Gospel of John tonight because John does some really cool stuff with – Jesus and with all with all the Old Testament, um, John presents Jesus as the physical embodiment of the temple. So we can remember that the temple was a symbol of the world. It was a symbol of the kingdom. It was a symbol of the house, and it was a symbol of the body. And so all of those all of those get stacked in John's gospel in the literal flesh and blood of Jesus himself. So uh, let's read John one. Uh, 1 through 4, or this is 1 through 5 together. Uh, It says 1 through 14 there on your paper. That was a typo. I apologize. Um, But the first five verses, and you will note pretty readily the creation language that's going on here. It says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. 
the word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Okay, so right there you have Jesus presented as this thing called the word, and, and John's picture is that when, when God is saying, let there be light, let there be a space in the, in the waters, let there be, you know, whenever God is speaking and creating, that, that that speech act, that word that has power, that creative force of God is Jesus. That that, 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 he, that, that, that aspect of God that is this creative power is, is who we know as the person of Jesus. Um, now, if you skip down a little in the prologue, that's where this is where it gets really, really interesting. Uh, in John 1.14, it says, So the word became human, or uh, some translations, the word became flesh, but that's what it means, uh, and made his home among us. Uh, now, uh, what's interesting about this particular phrase is that... Um, in Greek, so so there's a, there's a there's a translation of the of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Okay, this is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And after the exile, when the Jews got scattered from Israel and got scattered all over the place, uh, after Alexander the Great conquered most of the known world in his day, basically after Alexander the Great on, Greek was sort of the main language that just about everyone spoke. You would speak it's sort of like in Africa today, where you have like the various tribal languages, but then you have a common language, usually it's whatever the colonial language was, English or French or something like that, or a lot of them do Swahili as like a common trade language. It was like that. You would speak, you know, whatever you grew up speaking in the home, but then you also like pretty much everyone knew Greek because that was what you had to know to get by like in the business world or, or anything like that. And so the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek and that translation was known as the Septuagint, okay? So the New Testament is written in Greek, and most of the readers of the New Testament who heard it in Greek, right, the translation of the Old Testament that they knew was the Septuagint. Especially if you're talking about Paul's churches, you know, when you're in Jerusalem and stuff, they probably still heard it read in Hebrew and synagogue and stuff like that, right? But once you get to Paul's churches where he's planning among Gentiles who've never been to a synagogue, the, the copy of the Old Testament that they have is going to be the Septuagint. And they, they're learning all of these stories. They're learning all of this history in Greek. Okay? Now, this is why it's in, this is why, this is why, who cares? Okay? Uh, the word that John uses there that I put in bold, the word became human and made his home. The literal Greek word there is actually pitched a tent. Okay? It's set up a tent or, you know, went camping. It's, it's got that, that language to it. And it's the exact same root word that the Septuagint uses to describe the tabernacle, which again was the portable temple. It was a big tent that they used before they built the permanent temple. So you could literally translate that verse, and an ancient Greek reader would have read that verse, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And it's, it's exactly that awkward. Like the, the word that he uses doesn't, it's not really like a real word. It's like one that he kind of, you know, he kind of made up. And the awkwardness of it is on purpose. He wants you, the Greek reader, to be like, I mean, I, I understand what he just said, but that's a weird way to say that, you know, um, because he wants you to tie Jesus becoming flesh and blood to the temple, to the tabernacle. He wants you to see that God taking on human flesh 
is a new event in salvation history, that we had creation in the Garden of Eden, we had the fall, we had the covenant and the tabernacle and the temple, and now we have walking, talking, breathing, healing temple. Okay? Now, if you, we miss that in English because uh, our translations obscure that. Okay? If our English translation said the word became flesh and tabernacle among us, we'd probably, we'd do the same thing. We'd be like, what? What? What a tabernacle. When we go look it up, we, we start to figure it out, right? But our English translations obscure that. And so we just blow right past that. And so we end up missing some of the really interesting things that John is doing in his gospel. So, for instance, look at what happens in the temple cleansing. It's in John 2, uh, verse 8. Well, so... If, you, if you're not familiar with the temple cleansing, Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out all the people selling and stuff like that in there. So immediately after this in John's gospel is the verses I gave you there, 18 through 21. It says, the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? Right? They're like, hey, you're disrupting everything. You're causing a big problem. Why are you doing this? If God gave you the authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, here's your sign. Right? Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, this confuses them, understandably. They say, what? It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? And that's where the story stops. It seems like Jesus, like, dropped the mic and walked away, right? Like, done. Um, but then we get this little editorial comment from the author of the gospel who says, but when Jesus said temple, he meant his own body. Which, again, we picked up from the... the prologue, right? We said, oh, we've already had that weird tabernacle phrase here, but now it's explicitly saying that when Jesus was referring to this temple that was going to be torn down and then built again in three days, he was talking about the temple of his body. And if you, yeah, yeah, if you know the end of the story, right, spoiler, um, that's a clear reference to Jesus's resurrection. Now, there's a, I would, we, we could spend like a hundred years in the gospel of John, but there's some interesting stuff going on with this creation language in this temple stuff. Uh, in John, there's uh, we have that in the beginning thing, that whole in the beginning God created, right? But then we have, uh, there's only seven miracles in John's gospel. In the other three gospels, Jesus is just like a miracle machine. Like he's churning them out all the time. Like he's walking on water. There's, there's stories where it's like, uh, Jesus went to this house and like all night long, sick people and demon possessed people just kept coming. And he was just like healing them left and right. You know, there's like people grabbing his clothes and he's like raising, I mean, just all over the place. The other three gospels are lousy with miracles, right? But in John, there are only seven. And the first one actually happens right before this in Canaan, right? Where he changes the water into wine. And after that miracle, it says, now this was the first sign that Jesus did. And you're like, okay. A little while later, he does a second miracle, and it says, this was the second sign Jesus did. You're like, oh, we're counting. Okay. Um, and so if you count through the signs in Jesus' gospel, you get seven of them. There are seven, which is interesting for a book that begins with in the beginning, because there are seven days of creation, right? Not an accident. Now, the seventh sign is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So this promise of new life, right? But then, of course, there's this big climactic event at the end of the gospel where Jesus is executed. And so it's interesting that there's a final miracle, there's a final sign in the gospel of John, and it takes place on what day of the week? Sunday, the first day of the week, 
which is the eighth day, which is the first day of a new creation. And again, remember, all of these symbols that got stacked onto Jesus, including temple, that Jesus is the temple, right? And the temple is a picture for the Jewish people of the universe. And so in Jesus' resurrection, you're getting a recreation. You're getting a new creation. We had, a, we had an old creation that was killed, and then a new creation that's brought to life. And so in John's gospel, and only in John's gospel, Jesus is wandering around in a garden, and a woman comes up to him, and she thinks he's a gardener. And so we have, on the first day of a new creation week, a man and a woman in a garden starting a whole new creation story. I never it's cool, right? Yeah. And again, like I told you, we could, we could spend like 100 years in the Gospel of John. It's, it's, this stuff goes deep, okay? All this temple language, all this creation language, but it's all built on this Jewish worldview of what the temple is. Okay, and so for so Jesus's resurrection is a new temple. It's a new creation. It's a new world. It's a new body, right? A body that's no longer defined by death, because it's beaten death. Okay, now, now I'm going to make you practice. Okay, so this is where I said you're going to do a little bit more group work. So you guys can just come up and join this little group up here. Um, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to read this passage. It's from John 14. It's a passage that most of you probably heard at some point before. And then there are three questions I want you to work through in your group. And they might be a little bit tricky, mainly because of probably how you've heard this text taught before. But remember what we've been talking about with the Gospel of John, with the creation language, with the temple language, and, and stretch yourself a little bit. So this is happening the night. Uh, it's, it's, it's hours before Jesus is betrayed given over to the Romans. It's probably, you know, 12 hours-ish before he's dead. Okay? So, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's house. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going, or would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to where I am going. Okay, so that, I'm going to just do that little bit of the passage. Uh, go ahead and get into your groups. Work through those. I'm going to give you about five minutes to work through those three questions, and we'll see how you do with them. This is practice, so don't stress out about it. Have fun with it. Talk through it together. Someone can elect themselves devil's advocate if they want, um, but we'll bring it back together in about five minutes. All right. When Jesus says Father's house, what is he talking about? Brave soul wants to venture a guess. <laughs> Let me ask it this way. What would any first century Jewish person have heard when Jesus said Father's house? Temple. Temple. So, Jesus says there's plenty of room. If, if, we, if we hear it the way the disciples would have heard it, right? There's more than enough room in the temple, which is the creed, the, again, the, the symbol, right? I mean, they had a physical building at this point, but it represented, represented so much more. It represented the cosmos. It represented God's kingdom, right? God's home, hence the Father's house metaphor. And it represented Jesus' body, though they did not really understand that at that point, right? They're still trying to figure this out. So this is a tricky one. I, I wondered um, if people would skip over some stuff. Where is Jesus going? 
No, I mean, like, right, like, where's he about to go? Yeah, he's about to go die, right? Yeah, I, I mean, we do. We skip over that because we know the ending, right? We're just like, well, I mean, obviously, we, we fast forward, like, a couple months, you know. But no, he's, he's, a, he's and, and again, hear the weight of what Jesus is saying if you understand it that way. If you listen to the, to the you know, the immediate events, there's plenty of room in my father's house, and I'm about to go prepare a place for you. Or something, yeah. I mean, right? That parallel was here now in three mm-hmm. days, and they're still thinking mm-hmm. physical building. Yeah. And he's so far beyond that capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course. Now, so then, how is Jesus going to prepare a place? He's going to die. And we that that is the Christian confession, right? That Jesus' death is what breaks the power of sin and death in the world. And opens up, yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's not like we're way, way off here, right? But it, but it's, it's about hearing how John is telling the story of Jesus and paying attention to it, you know, the through line. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. The question back here. Yeah. Yeah. They your temple when he said father's house. Uh-huh. What did he say? Uh, well, again, this is the beauty of a symbol, right? Yes, he does mean the temple, but he's the temple. And the kingdom, and the house, and the, I mean, it's he is all of those things. He's the because again, rem, like, let's be real blasphemous for a moment. The temple's just a building. People built it and do stuff in it. But God says over and over and over through the prophets, "Do you really think you can build me a house that I need? Like I built this as my house. You know, I, I hung the stars. I unrolled the." The sky across, or the you know, the stars across the sky. You you think that your cute little building is anything for me? Like thanks, I guess. I mean that's that's kind of the tone that some of the prophets take. And so yeah, um, when Jesus, when John says that Jesus is the temple, I mean he's meaning that he is all of these things and so so much more. Um, so yeah, he meant all of that stuff, which is again the beauty of the fact that they're hearing him. But then you, I mean, you can imagine, fast forward a couple months to where we all want to go, right? Jesus is gone, and someone's like, wait a second. Do you remember when he said, tear the temple down and I'll build it in three days? Oh, like you can imagine the light bulbs going off. And they're like, oh, that's, you know, as they're recalling these stories that had happened. And, you know, over the first few years after Jesus is gone, and they're all trying to figure out what he was talking about. Like, they, like things keep coming, you know, going off. And, yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, all these. Right. They start making all these connections. And again, they're telling these stories to each other over and over and over again. They're, they're, they're not stopping to worship. Uh, they're not they're, they haven't quit reading the Old Testament together and these kinds of things. And so it just it you know, you can imagine this framework. Begin, yeah. And you can also understand why it took, a, it took 30 or 40 or 50 years to write some of this stuff down, you know, because <laughs> they had to get a handle. I mean, the, the Gospel of John is, is a magnificent piece of literature. It's it, it, uh, one of my favorite quotes about it uh, from one of our one of the early church fathers is that uh, the Gospel of John is a pool in which a child can wade and an elephant can swim. You know, and then, yeah, I mean, that that you don't you know, you don't just wake up one day and write something like that. I mean, that that is that is a, a long a lifetime of careful thought and prayer and planning and, you know, and art, right? To be able to write something that, yeah, someone can read that and go, John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Oh, that's me. Oh, okay. And, and find Christ. But then also that you can spend your entire lifetime 
understanding this book and finding new things in it and understanding God in new and more beautiful ways. That, that's, that's cool. That's Right. They were confident to trust in God, but they weren't confident yet to trust him. Yeah, they weren't. Just to go back to those words there, make sure that we trust you too. Mm-hmm. Good, very good. All right, so we got on Jesus' temple. All right, let's keep going. we got a few more things we want to try to fit in. Uh, so the question then is, what happens to Jesus' body after the ascension, which again, if you were here the first week, we talked about as Jesus is assuming the throne of heaven, right? It's not, um, not, it's, it's, it's now he's the king. Now he's in the throne. Now he is, he has ascended to the throne. Uh, so on earth, Jesus's body becomes what? Someone surely, it's kind of a, you'll, you'll hit yourself on the side of the head when I tell you. Where, where's Jesus's body today? Yeah, the church. Yeah, right? The New Testament says the church is the body of Christ. And because it is Jesus' body, and Jesus' body is the temple, that means in some way the church is the temple of God. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 together. Paul is writing to the Christians who are in Corinth. This is a church that he planted, and then he's left to go somewhere else, and so he's, you know, he's writing to keep in touch with them. And he says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say that you are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't, and then right after all this conversation about purity and sexual sin and all this kind of stuff, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and who was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So here's the, again, this is where our English translations don't do us any favors. Uh, if you have studied other languages, particularly like Western languages and things like that, then you probably know that most other languages have two forms of the, the second person pronoun you. There's a singular form and a plural form. Uh, our friends to the south have retained this in you and y'all, right, if I'm talking to you. Uh, but, but most of us today, uh, most of us in official English, like we just have, if I'm saying, I, Angel, what are you doing later? I'm saying, hey, what are you doing later? There is no difference in our language between you, singular, and you, plural. Um, that gets us into trouble here because Greek is one of those languages that does have a different pronoun for the second person plural. And in the end of this passage there, uh, in, in verse 19, it says, don't you realize that your, you can underline that or circle it if you want on your paper, that you or your is plural, okay? But the word body is singular. So it's saying, don't you all realize that y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Not, don't you all realize that your bodies are temples 
of the Holy Spirit, but y'all's one collective body, which is the church, which is the body of Christ. So again, what is the temple of the Holy Spirit? It is God's people who have come together, who are the church together. That is the presence of God on earth. And so then Paul is, I mean, that's, that's, that's why Paul is talking about sexual sin there and saying, like, you know, don't you know that, like, you know, your hand can't sin without all of you sinning, right? You, one part of the body can't go into sin without dragging the entire body in with it. That's what, that's what bodies are. And you're part of Christ's body. Well, you see so many examples of it in, in the Old Testament. Yes. 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 So there are a couple things that I think are interesting about this that I wanted to point out to you. Um, first of all, uh, this, this really pushes against the idea that the church is a building, which is something that I think because we still meet in buildings and I don't know, I mean, that's not ever going to change in our culture anytime soon. That's something we particularly are going to have to continue to struggle against. You know, we think of this building as Beaver Creek Church of Nazarene, when in fact Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene is the group of people who meet in this building. We love this building. It's got lots of wonderful features about it. Right? But this building is not the church that God has called and placed in Beaver Creek, Ohio. We are the church that God has called and placed in Beaver Creek, Ohio. And we are grateful for the resources of this building that God has blessed us with. But we would do well to fight against the temptation that we have to slip into that just easy mode of thinking about the, you know, this, that this is the church. And that somehow only when we're here can we be doing church things. Right? And again, that's just, we struggle with that. You know, the Corinthians met in homes. And so, you know, they probably, there, we don't actually know how many different individual Corinthian congregations there were, but there were probably quite a few as the church grew because those homes, you know, maybe 15 or 20 people total. Very, yeah, I mean, well, yes, very much so. And that was, that actually was the next thing I wanted to point out was that this really pushes on the idea that small groups Versus the large worship are what really, really, really is the heart, you know, the, 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 the meat and potatoes of what church is, you know. Um, we, again, we could do a whole week on this, right? But uh, what Paul says church is is when groups of people who follow Jesus get together and they're all using their spiritual gifts to serve each other, right? Every per- again, just like a body, everyone has a thing that's their thing that has been given to them by the Spirit. And this body needs all of those things happening at the same time. You know, to, to be a fully functioning body. It's like if you, I mean, all of us have had a limb fall asleep, right? You slept on your hand wrong or something like that. And it just doesn't work for a little bit. And you're like, like this is, you know, you feel uh, like you're lacking in that, right? Just even just for a few brief moments. And so Paul says like that's, you know, when, when we're not all using those spiritual gifts, that's, that's how it is. And the problem with a large worship gathering, like what we do here, right, where there's 300-ish people all in the room together, is that, 90% of the people in the room aren't using their spiritual gifts at that moment to minister to the other people in the room. They're sort of more passively receiving what a few people are using their gifts to do, right? And that's why that's why a small group is vital, 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 vital to that full spirituality that God intended you for. Because if you've never been in a group where you're needed, then you're really not fulfilling that function that God has called you to and that the Spirit has gifted you. You know, to be able to be able to serve the other people around. Um, so again, not not advocating we tear the building down and only meet in homes or something like that. We we enjoy the fruit of these kinds of facilities and things like that. And obviously, like I'm a big fan of Sunday morning stuff. We just can't ever forget that that's not the end of the story, and that the best, best, best 
picture of what a full Christian life looks like is not me showing up and passively consuming on a weekend. It's me using my gifts and talents and the things that God has called me to do to serve my brothers and sisters um, who are a part of my body. That's really the, the fullest, most powerful kind of spirituality that God's called us to. So, and, and because of the kind of culture we are in, that's something that's particularly challenging for us. Um, other, you know, the Corinthians obviously had different challenges. They lived in a culture that was much more uh, accepting of prostitutes. And so apparently people in the church didn't think it was a problem to sleep with prostitutes. And Paul was like, all right, all right, all right we got to clear some stuff up. You know, Evidently, our culture doesn't either. Well, we're a little better than the Corinthians, I think. But yeah, we, we definitely still have some problems. So um, now, what I really want to spend just a few moments on is this idea that if we are the church, if we are the body of Christ, if we are the temple of God, the model that we have from Jesus is that body that is broken for the world around it, broken to make room for the world, bro- broken to make a place for people, right? And so if we, the church, are to be that body, what does it mean to say that we bear the scars of the crucifixion, right? What does it mean to say that we embody the brokenness that Christ embraced on the cross? What does it mean to say that that's what we are characterized by, you know? Not by how well we have things together, how, you know, the, the appearances that we put on for people, but actually by embracing the brokenness of everyone. And we say that on our own, we're not adequate, right? On our own, we're not enough. We need need each other. We need the healing that comes from being together in the body. And it's, it's actually when all of us broken individuals come together that we find wholeness because we are incorporated into Jesus. And it's Jesus's broken, buried, and resurrected body that is the is where we find healing. So I put a little song lyric on the bottom of that piece of paper. It's, it's a song lyric from a band called Brand New. They're very angsty. Um, the guy, the lead singer and lyricist, has clearly had some kind of religious background. I don't, I don't actually know like exactly what it is. But he, he wrote this lyric in one of his songs, and it's something that has haunted me. I think it's a really interesting sort of um, reflection on... Um, Uh, death and heaven and judgment and all these kinds of things. So he says in the song, well, Jesus Christ, I'm not, and he's, I mean, he's he's talking to Jesus Christ. It's not like he's swearing, right? He says, you know, he says, Jesus Christ, I'm not scared to die. I'm a little bit scared of what comes after. And then uh, there's a a few lyrics in there and they rhyme and stuff. But then at the end of that phrase, he says, at the gates, will Thomas ask to see my hands? Why that haunts me is because obviously Thomas is not the one that we traditionally think of at the gates, right? It's St. Peter even though that's not anything that's in the Bible anywhere. That's just church tradition. And I don't know where it came from really, but, you know, Peter's at the gates, right? So as soon as he says Thomas, he's already making me be like, well, wait a second, Thomas. And we all know Doubting Thomas is called Doubting Thomas because when Jesus appeared, he demanded proof that Jesus was resurrected and the proof that Jesus offered his scars. And so he's saying, when I get to the gates, am I going to have to demonstrate that I've lived a crucified life to get in? And I think, ooh. Now again, I don't, he's not a theology teacher or anything, but I, uh, that lyric just really gripped me. You know, because he's sort of wondering, like, do I look that much like Jesus? And, and will I have to look like Jesus, you know, to, to get in? Um, so I don't know. Just, I don't know what to do with that. Just threw it out there for you. Enjoy it. <laughs> um, 
I just think it's a good reminder for me always to say, you know, do I do I embody, do I look like who Jesus is? So, any questions about church as temple, church as body, what, what, um, where that is in the New Testament, how that kind of is a through line? Okay, we have, we have about 30 minutes left, which is good. I want to dig in a little bit to where this discussion lands us today, because we don't have temples, right? And we've talked a little bit about churches broken and things like that, but I want to I want to look for a minute at body and culture. So, uh, how many of you watched the Super Bowl? Most of us? Okay, good. Halftime show, a guy named Bruno Mars performed. This is one of the songs that he performed at halftime, one of his hit songs. It's called Locked Out of Heaven. And so I'm going to have you read this uh, just kind of on your own and uh, grab a pen or something like that. And just if you happen to find any religious language in there, um, then just kind of circle it or underline it or something. Uh, kind of. So again, just take like a minute or two to read this. And then I want to talk about uh, what he's doing in this song. There you go. Google to the rescue. That's how I found them. (laughs) All right. So, again, there's lots and lots of religious language in here. What stuck out to you? Okay. Good. This seems like blasphemy. Okay, that's fine. I mean, yeah, sure. Definitely. But um, there's there's some really intentional phrases in there that we do well to pay attention to, like born again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You would think that this was a hymn, wouldn't you? Until you get to the chorus. <laughs> now, okay, so let's let's stop on that for a minute. Okay? The verses have this explicitly religious framework, and it's not just random religious stuff, it's salvation language. It's repentance, it's baptism, it's born again, right? It's falling to my knees and testifying. I mean, this this is like old-timey revival language, you guys. It is. And, and it's, it should be, it's surprising to me at least, to find in a pop song being performed at halftime at the Super Bowl. Well, but the song's on the radio. I mean, I, I guarantee you a lot of the, the younger audience, they, yeah. So I am not personally a Bruno Mars fan, but I talked to several people as I was preparing this week about this song, and they were all like, oh, yeah, it's all about, you know, locked out of heaven, and they started singing it. So, I mean, I mean, yeah, we might not have understood the words, but uh, they're there. Now, what we need to ask, we've seen in the, you know, in the verses, there's this salvation framework. What is saving him according to the song? Sex. And explicitly, sex with this particular woman who is apparently denying him the pleasure at this moment, right? Because he's, he's asking, and the song is called Locked Out of Heaven, right? Okay. Um, this is fascinating 
because it tells us, uh, well, it's, it's a window into how our culture today views bodies. This is not an atypical song. It's more explicitly mixing religion and sexuality than most songs, but it's not weird. It's not an unusual uh, message to find in a lot of popular culture. Okay, um, That's why I also put this picture on there. Uh, this, I don't know, does anyone recognize me in that picture anyone watching? This, these are TV characters. Okay, these, I didn't even... Uh, these, these are characters from TV shows on the CW network, which used to be the WB and now it's the CW. Okay. Um, the CW has sort of become a running joke in the TV world because they have, like, every year they have a couple of new TV shows. But, like, if you're not paying attention, all of the actors on all of the CW shows look basically the exact same. To the point that if you put a bunch of them up there, you're like, I'm not sure which show those are in. If it's the one about the vampires or the superheroes or whatever. Um, they're, they're, in a, they're an overt, obvious example of our culture's idea of an idealized, beautiful body. Okay? And you, you see this in line at the, at the store when you're looking at the magazine racks, right? All of the people on the fronts of the magazines all look the exact same. Um, we've all probably seen all of the airbrushing advertising. If you haven't, there's a couple of really great commercials. Uh, you can go to Google and look them up showing how much airbrushing actually changes people by the time they get on the front of a magazine. They take perfectly beautiful looking people and airbrush them and change them until they get, you know, completely unrecognizable. Um, so there's there's some things that we can observe about the kinds of bodies that our culture is having, right? They're young. Um, everyone has to look young. If you don't look young, you're not pretty. That's what our culture says, right? Uh, they're flawless. Again, we airbrush. Even the most beautiful people in the world are not beautiful enough to be airbrushed. Uh, uh, Jennifer Lawrence, who is the star of the Hunger Games franchise, uh, she also just won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress in American Hustle, is up for an Oscar for it, right? She's very, very famous. I think she's like 23 or something. She's young enough that we all feel very unaccomplished when we consider her career and, and then what we've done with our lives. Um, but she was recently featured on the cover of a major magazine, and there was a big scandal that broke out because, again, she's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful young woman, probably the most, like, well-known 20-something in our culture right now, right? And they airbrushed her an, an incredible amount, right? And, and so, again, it, it just points out that, like, even the most beautiful, perfect people are not actually beautiful and perfect enough. We have to airbrush them so that they are – so that literally – the picture of beauty that is being put in front of us in commercials and print magazine and all this kind of stuff is literally unattainable. It is literally actually not possible for a human being to look this way because even the people in the magazines don't look that way, right? And so there's, there's this idea that our culture is perpetrating about what counts as a good body, right? And so the goal in our culture, and it's, again, I don't think it's, ra it's rarely ever stated out loud because when you say it out loud, it sounds insane, but it's, it's communicated through our media. The goal in our culture is to have one of these young, perfect bodies because, apparently, it will give you maximum pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. You'll have the envy of your friends. You'll have physical attraction and all these kinds of things. And it all ultimately leads to pleasure. And that is, as near as we can tell, that's the source of our salvation and of our intimacy. And if you remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, when we talked about, you know, the real depressing week, you remember that week? I'm sure we all do. Um, I mean, that's about, that's about the best we can hope for, right? If there is no 
there's no meaning if there's no purpose in life and you just sort of want to maximize your pleasure because what else are you going to do? And so the way that what, that what that ends up feeding is this whole beauty body culture that says, well, your body is a, a really good source of pleasure. You should maximize that. And, 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 and as, as near as, as near as I've been able to tell in our culture, that's, that's sort of the, the, the most we have to say about our bodies, you know, is that they're, you should you should keep them fit, keep them in shape, keep them as pretty as you can, and then enjoy them. So we should think about what our Christian response to this is, um, because it's grounded in our our role as God's temple in the world. Uh, the church is the place where broken bodies become whole in the body of Christ. Right, the church is the broken body of Jesus that was crucified and given to the world. This is why communion is such an important part of what we do. It's when we break bread and give it, it's a symbol of Jesus being broken over and offering himself to us. And contrast that, contrast that picture of the church, contrast that picture of who we are with who culture says our bodies are, right? Our culture says bodies, these perfect bodies, are our vehicle for salvation. Whereas the church says, no, it's broken bodies that give us our salvation. And specifically, a broken body as the source of our salvation. So we can say, we can say that we as the church, we are broken people who are pursuing wholeness and purity. But, and this is where, this is where the temple system went so wrong. We do not pursue wholeness and purity by excluding those who are broken. Right? Because that was what happened in the temples. You, if you were not physically whole, you were not permitted to be a part of it. So we say, no, we, act, we pursue wholeness and purity by embracing the brokenness in ourselves and the brokenness in each other because we know that it's in brokenness that we find God. So this is where Paul says things, right? Like, in my weakness, he is strong. It's not, it's not in the places where I'm whole and where I'm healthy and where I'm strong that I find God. Jesus said, I didn't come to heal those who don't need a doctor, right? I came for the sick. And so again, it's, it's in our brokenness. It's in our struggle. It's in our pain that we find Christ. And that's where the church is meant to be a place that does that. And again, this is all with an eye towards the end where we say we are not, we don't just like get together and revel in our brokenness for the sake of being broken together. We say, no, this is our path to healing. This is our path to wholeness. This is because this is all going somewhere. And it's going somewhere good. It's going somewhere positive. It's going somewhere healthy. So it should raise the question in this then, well, okay, what does restoration and resurrection look like? If the church is a foretaste of the new creation, right? If Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I'm being resurrected, is that, oh, what do you say in, in John? Hang on. Um, he said, uh, when everything is ready, I'm going to come and get you so you always be with me, right? Well, we believe that, again, there's a sense in which that's already true because we talk about having a relationship with God. We talk about experiencing Jesus' presence in our lives. And so we understand that, like, when Jesus raised from the dead and opened the way to this new creation for us, when he started this new creation week, we can begin to participate in that now through the Holy Spirit, through Jesus' presence in our lives, through participating in worship with the church, that these are... These are, uh, I think, I think 
a great metaphor. It works for me anyway because I love movies. Is their sneak peeks? Like when you go to the movie, you have to sit through all the pre. You have to. You get to sit through all the previews of the awesome movies that are going to come out. They're not the full movie, right? There's a little sneak peek. And if they're done really well, you can't wait. You're almost like I wish I were showing that movie instead of whatever movie I came to see. Right? That's sort of how the script. I mean, they don't use the movie metaphor because those are a little bit more recent than the Bible. But that's the the kind of metaphor that is talking about when when we say we can experience the resurrection world now. It's in that sense. It's in that preview sense that we have a foretaste of it. We have a a, a preview and imagine if it's enough. It's enough so that we know what we have in store. And we're excited about it, and we're th- and we and we know what to work, look for and work for. So we should ask, what does that look like? If that's that's who the church is, that that's what we know is coming. If that's the point of coming together and and uh, embracing our brokenness together, so that we can get to that place of wholeness, what does it look like? So first, one thing that we affirm, and we'll see this in a few moments, is that the new creation is a physical creation. That our bodies that we will have will be physical bodies. When Jesus came back, the Gospel of John and, and actually all of the Gospels that uh, that talk about resurrection have they go to great pains to establish that Jesus is not a ghost, right? He doesn't just appear there and look like he's human. I mean, he's uh, they're touching him, right? He's breaking, he's eating with them, he's doing physical things, and and the whole point of that was that they wanted to be very clear that people weren't just like hallucinating, right? Or again, that he had come back as a ghost. Or something. No, no, no. Like Jesus's physical body came back to life and exited the tomb. Like the tomb is empty, and Jesus's physical body has been resurrected in a meaningful, measurable, tangible way. Like you can touch him. That's the whole point of the Thomas story, right? Jesus, is like, poke your hole in my side. You know, poke your finger right in the spear hole. Thomas is like, okay. Which I still think is super gross, but he does that. So, so whatever this, whatever this resurrection is, it is going to be physical and provocatively enough, I think, um, Jesus' body still bears the scars of the crucifixion. When Jesus is resurrected, he is not like a new, pristine, um, unrecognizable person. I mean, something's different, because they sometimes they recognize him and sometimes they don't, and it's, it's strange, which we'll get to, right? But I mean, he has the crucifixion scars, and they're the primary identifier by which they recognize him. And they're like, are you sure? He's like, yep. Look. So, here's where I kind of want to camp out for just a couple of minutes. I think it raises some important questions about things like disability. Right? So, for instance, will people be deaf in heaven? Our immediate answer would be no. Right? The problem is, though, if you know deaf people, you know that there's an entire deaf culture. That they have, they, I mean, it's as much a culture as any other nationality or something like that. They have their own language, they have their own customs, and, and all, every measurement of culture that you have, deaf people have. And in the scriptures, it specifically says that in heaven will be people from every language, race, tribe, tongue, culture. I know. I never thought of it. I know. To take it a step further. Please. What about those like in war that have been yes. alone mm-hmm. to a billion, million mm-hmm. people? Mm-hmm. They don't have bodies anymore? They don't have bodies. 
or uh, people who have died in fire, cremated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here's here's where here's another. This is I'll actually share with you the example in my own mind that really got me started thinking about this path and trying to take seriously what it means that the resurrection is physical, but that Jesus's resurrected body has the scars of his life, his earthly life. Um, if you know anyone who has a child who has something like Down syndrome, and you have you or you have enough of a relationship with those parents to ask them about you know the the Downs, what you will more often than not find is that they consider I mean almost always they consider their child to be a full person, that they're not deficient, that they're not lacking, that they and that that in that they love their child not in spite of their chromosomal misforming, but because of it. That that, that that actually is an essential part of who their child is. Well, will that child have Down syndrome in the resurrection? Our initial gut reaction is, well, of course not. Well, because, I mean, this is your... Sure, right. sure, yeah, 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 that's fine. And I can't remember exactly the scripture, but Jesus said that when will be made. Mm -hmm. Again, we, there will be no more weeping, no more right. suffering. Right. No more. But see, this is the problem. When you talk to those parents, they say, my child is whole. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that. And they don't have the help. Right. And, and again, if, if, if the, again, I'm just going to pick on Downs. If Downs is an essential part of who they are, essential, not accidental, not incidental, but essential. If, if, that has formed them into a particular person who is whole. What happens when you take that away? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Or it would be something comparable to that, right? Um, I'm who I am because I'm male. If I had been born female, I'd be hopefully pretty different, you know. <laughs> and so, if in heaven we were all female, would I even still be me? Um, I would say, well, no. In an important way, I wouldn't have that part of myself. So now I'm not I'm not telling you which way it's going to be one way or the other. I'm illustrating for you that I'm really confused about this, and, it, and because again there are other, so there are other chromosomal defects that are fatal, right? And the children either die in the womb or die shortly after. Well, obviously there's no meaningful way to talk about that being resurrected and restored. Um, and if a Down syndrome through the chromosomal. Mm -hmm. Deficiencies, or however that happens, that what they're lacking causes them to be born with this. The same way with CF, with mm -hmm. MD, yep. that these people then again are whole, and it wasn't an accident. Right. They were born that way. So will they have CF? Right. And muscular dystrophy, and da 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 da. Right. I mean, and there are all kinds of illnesses that progress mm -hmm. for older people. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we have Jesus's healings, which we talked about earlier, which are specifically interpreted by his followers as pointers yeah. to the new right. world. Yeah. So we see Jesus heal. Now we know also, just to keep complicating it, because, you know, we're not all frustrated enough yet. Um, <laughs> Jesus did not heal every single person he walked past. No, no. We know that he didn't. Yeah, well, me too, right? Um, yeah, because you're like, I mean, how would you feel if it's like healed him, healed him, healed him? See you, man. You're like, whoa, wait, but what about me? You know? Um, now, again, there's there's this confusing confusing tension 
that Jesus heals as an integral part of his ministry, that we have all of these proclamations about wholeness, right, and restoration and redemption. And, um, and yet, Jesus' body bears the scars of the crucifixion. He, he, in his resurrected form, embodies the consequences of sin. Those aren't erased. They aren't discarded. So would that probably mean we would still bear the scars from our... I don't know. I mean, let, let's tell you this. How old are you going to be? I don't know. I mean, is, is everyone just going to be 33? Because that's ish when, you know, so if you die when you're five, you are 33. And if you die when you're 55, you're 33. And if you die when you're 500, you're 33, you know. What if you didn't like 33 very much? What if you lost a bunch of weight when you're 34? Like, you know what I mean? Like, um... Yeah, yeah. Will we all be like? Will we all have the magazine cover bodies that our culture <laughs> values? Um, see, I mean, this is this all gets really complicated. Um, and, and, and yeah, go ahead, Karen. I guess I just vision it not in a physical realm that we have today. Okay. Even though we will recognize each uh-huh. other, and I will surely know you are Jr. A person of my um, you know, relatives, uh-huh. all that, but as we see each other, we will be complete mm-hmm. in the sense that Christ was complete. Scars and all, maybe. Scars and all, whatever. Yeah. I think a lot of his scars, or at least how I interpret it sometimes, maybe it's not right, but that he on purpose kept those okay. to prove mm-hmm. to those that that was. Him? The, yeah, he okay. That he overcame mm-hmm. death, and mm-hmm. it really was him that overcame death. But Could be. For that culture to believe, or any culture to believe, well, prove it to me. Where the, you know, you got past it. In today's culture, it, it may be being blown up in mm-hmm. Iraq in mm-hmm. a war, and then all the pieces are put back together. Mm-hmm. Here he is, this whole person that we can recognize. Sure. Yes. Is miraculous, right? Miraculous. Yeah. So here he is with these scars yeah. to prove to the people that he was appearing to, but then he says, you will be whole. Mm-hmm. And we really don't, I mean, we can put all this, but we really don't know. Right. We just know it's going to be a perfect order mm-hmm. and a perfect place. And uh, as one of you quoted, right, no more tears, no more sorrow, wow. right. Well, let me read you what Paul says. We are not the first person to ask this question. Um, so, yeah, let me read you what Paul says. So, first of all, um, I didn't put this in your homework. I should have. It would do you well to read all of 1 Corinthians 15 at some point in this week. Uh, it is the the whole chapter is about the resurrection because there are people in the city of Corinth, in these churches, who are denying that there is any resurrection from the dead, that that is a thing that happens. Um, basically, they're sort of saying this is what you get, and then it's over. Right? And so Paul is actually writing to them to affirm the reality of the resurrection. And that's first that's first Corinthians fifteen. Oh, it isn't homework? Oh good. Oh yeah, okay. I didn't put the number three in my notes. Okay, never mind. It isn't homework. Good. Um, excellent. Good job, me earlier. Past me. Um, okay. So let's read uh, just uh, thirty three through forty four or thirty five through forty four. And I, I skipped a few verses in the middle there because they weren't immediately pertinent to this. But again, uh, on your own during this week, read through it a couple times. Pay attention to the things that really stick out to you. It's, it's a really, really great chapter. So here's what Paul says. Some may ask what we were just asking. How will the dead be raised? 
What kinds of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. Thank you, Paul. That does not hurt at all, right? Um, this is what he says. This, he said, this is why he says it's a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant until else it dies first. And what you put into the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. It's the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as they're natural bodies, they're spiritual bodies. So Paul says, you know, imagine you're holding a seed in your hand, right? Um, an apple seed or a tomato seed or whatever. You, there's no way, by looking at the seed, that you can possibly begin to imagine what the fruit will be that grows from it, unless you have previous knowledge of what the fruit already looks like, right? If you've seen an apple. But if, you, if all you had ever seen was an apple seed, and someone showed you an apple, you'd be like, those things have nothing to do with each other, right? They, they're not connected in any way. There's no way by looking at the thing that's planted that you can imagine what the fruit that will be sown is. And he says that's the way it is with our resurrection bodies. We have all these questions. We have all these uh, puzzles. And they matter. They're good questions. They're good puzzles. They, they, uh, particularly for those of us who uh, have any kind of uh, disease or illness or uh, disability in our lives and the lives of those we love. They're, they're important and they're meaningful questions. But what Paul promises us, what the scriptures affirm for us over and over and over, is that uh, God is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and that includes the resurrection. So yes, our bodies will be physical. Yes, probably in some way they're going to bear the scars of sin and death the way Christ's body did. Um, but we have no idea what that's going to look like. We just know that it's going to be awesome. We know that we know that God is faithful and that God will not allow sin and death to have the final word in creation. God will take back what is his. Uh, and so um, that is the good news about our bodies. And that is why it's particularly important for we as the church to be faithful witnesses to embrace brokenness, not to flee from it, right? Um, I was actually, I forgot that I was going to share the story earlier in the week until just now, but when I first started out as a youth pastor, uh, there was a guy who came to our church who was about 32. So I was, I was 22. I was just out of college. And this guy who was coming to our church, who was about 30, 32, 33, something like that. And he was mentally handicapped. Um, I, I never, I didn't know his parents or anything like that, but I kind of guessed that mentally he was probably somewhere around 14 or 15 years old, which made him a perfect fit for the youth group. I mean, all of the things that our 14 or 15 year olds love to do were the things that he loved to do. And apparently the previous youth pastor that, that was before me uh, had base, had incorporated him and called him like a helper, a volunteer, but he, I mean, he, was, he was just a, another kid. Uh, I had received no training at Bible college for how to uh, minister to those who are, are disabled. And I had no idea how to handle this person who was 10 years older than I was, uh, who was functionally one of my youth but who, frankly, creeped a lot of the other youth out because they had also not been taught how to embrace someone who was different. And so uh, I took some bad advice uh, from a volunteer who was a part of the youth program when I came there and basically kicked him out of our, like, helping out. I know, thank you. I already feel bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but honestly, 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 to this day, that's one of my biggest regrets of my entire life um, was be because I was not equipped. I did not understand how to embrace 
someone who was broken, someone who was different from I was. And and of all of the places in the entire world that that should not have been the case, it should have been the church. Um, and again, I take full responsibility for that, but also I was I was not prepared. I was not encouraged by the church. Right. So, I mean, again, it was my call. I did it. Um, but but it, it is a shame that I've carried with me uh, for the, for this guy. And I just, I want to be a part of a church that's better than that. You know, I want to be a part of a church that uh, where broken people know beyond any shadow of a doubt from the first time they come in the door that this is a place for them. You know, from the first, I shouldn't say they come in the door because this is not the church, right? But from the first time that they encounter us, that, that we are a people who welcome them, who love them, because we are broken as well. And we find wholeness and healing not in chasing some sort of ridiculous ideal that our culture has put in front of us, but in the broken and resurrected body of Jesus. Um, that's what makes us whole, and that's where our hope is. And so uh, I think that we, as, as the church here in Beaver Creek, uh, needs to bear witness to that. You know, we need to be the church that embodies that. So uh, any questions, comments, thoughts? Yeah. Of course. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, yep, I I can only agree with you. It is it is a very hard thing to do. Um, and I you know I think. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. 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 Did they keep him on or did they fire him? (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, so I think it's kind of our culture teaches us to be so hesitant that other people are good people. Automatically yeah. assume that they everyone has our favorite motives. And that's not always true, right? It's yeah. Not. It's not. Um. You know. Yeah. When I mean, and this is a very hard thing, right? It's a very it's and and so maybe maybe the one thing I'll share with you, the one thing that I've learned in my life. And hopefully it'll be helpful for you. Um, you know, your first, if this is something that's challenging for you, your first move should probably not be to, like, go find a homeless person and invite them to spend the night at your house. Like, that's a big that's a big step, right? Your first step should probably be a little step, you know? Um, one of the things that I used to do to sort of combat this tendency in my own heart uh, was uh, I, uh, when I was part of a campus ministry, uh, we had a downtown area where there were a lot of homeless people. They would they'd kind of hang out and, and beg and stuff like that. And so the other nice thing about being in the downtown area, this college ministry or this uh, this college, is there were tons and tons of food places uh, right around there. And so uh, I just made it a point that when someone would stop me and ask me for money, I would always offer to buy them a meal. I'd say, well, let's go into and I could point and there'd be 17 places. You know, that 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 you know, hey, do you want some? I'll get you a burrito chipotle. You know, come on and. 
nine times out of ten, they were like, no, thanks. I just want money. And I was like, well, okay, that's fine. You know, but there were a few times that I, I got a meal for someone, you know, and, and that was a small thing, but it was a way for me to say, instead of just walking past and pretending I don't hear them, I'm going to engage them and treat them like a human being. I'm going to offer them something that costs me a little bit, you know? Um, now I didn't, I didn't end homelessness. Uh, by doing that, but it was a it, more importantly, it was a small step in my own soul, right? To begin to begin to be more comfortable embracing people who are not like me, and particularly people that are the the least of the least. Um, we're a little bit over time. I, I need to close in prayer. I want to tell you one other thing. This would be a, this would be something that kind of is a big step, right? But I think it was a really uh, a really inspiring and frankly terrifying way that some churches have begun to reach out to people that would definitely be considered among the least of these in our culture today. There are some cultures who are uh, some churches who have either like, I know one church that does it on a Thursday night. Another church basically just started like a church plant um, to do this. And on Thursday night at this one church or at this other campus entirely all the time, no children are allowed at all on the grounds period, because it is a church for registered sex offenders. And so they look them up on the internet because you can, and they invite them to church. And they say, we have created a space where you can come, and we want to minister to you. Now, that's terrifying to me, okay? Those of you who have children, I'm sure it's even triply or quadruply terrifying to you. But that is a church that has gone way, way out of their comfort zone to minister to people that I guarantee you no one else is ministering to. People who, who live on a daily daily in shame and condemnation in self-loathing you know um frankly that's the kind of a church that i want to be a part of um i'm also terrified to be a part of that kind of a church uh, i am but but when i look at jesus that's who i see when i look at a broken body given to a world to redeem that's what i see and that's scary for me i know it's scary for you but that's that's the kind of church i want to be a part of so let's pray together. God, we're so thankful for this chance that we have to come and to consider your uh, your teachings. We're thankful for this picture that we have of, of a temple that is a body that has been broken and offered to the world. That your temple was never meant to be a place that closes you or closes us off from the realities of a, a broken and scary place, but that you, uh, you were broken open for the broken. And that it's in you that we find wholeness. Help us to imagine what it is to be the church that embraces brokenness. And that is a place where everyone can find wholeness uh, in you and in your body. We love you a lot. We are so, so, so thankful for the powerful picture of love and of rescue that we have seen tonight. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. All right, we're halfway done.